Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hi, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Eli Guru. Today, we've got an exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Yeah, today we have a real rock star in the medical device industry. We've got Mitch Levinson, who is the founder, CEO, and president of Cerebrotech Medical. Mitch is one of those guys that, that you've, got, you've got to hear his tips and, and advice. He's done this many, many times, especially in the med device space, and some of his previous startups have, have been successful acquisitions and IPOs, and he's doing it again with his, his latest company. But Mitch is going to share some, some key tips on how to remove regulatory obstacles from, from your startup and, and um, give you some, some tips and pointers on some fundraising as well. So please enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, this is John Spear, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. I'm really excited today. I have uh, a wonderful guest, uh, a startup pro and, and veteran, somebody that's been through this many times before. Today I have with me Mitch Levinson. Mitch is a startup medical device executive with over 30 years of experience developing and bringing revolutionary new products to market. Mitch is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Cerebrotech Medical, a medical device startup based in Pleasanton, California. Mitch started Cerebrotech Medical Systems in 2011 based on a technology developed at UC Berkeley. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I know that uh, that bio was pretty brief, and, and I'm sure there are, as we talk today, that you'll be able to share a lot of the other experiences you have. But if, if you want to expand on that a little bit, talk about a few of the other startups that you've, you've been a part of over the past few years, that'd be great. Oh, sure, sure. Um, uh, well, let's see. So, uh, Cerebrotech is my fifth startup company and fourth in medical devices. The um, last uh, company that I started was called Zeltique, and Zeltique is the company behind the cool sculpting procedure. Uh, it's a non-invasive technology for uh, killing and removing fat from places that you'd rather not have it. Uh, and that, that company, um, I started there as the startup CEO back in 2005 and ran the company for four years and stuck around for another uh, another year in follow-through mode as the commercial uh, CEO took, took the reins. And um, that company uh, had a nice IPO in 2011, and uh, now it's over a billion-dollar market cap company, and it's right here in, in my hometown of Pleasanton. Um, prior to that, I was the startup VP of R&D at a company called Thermage, which um, had also a nice IPO in 2006 and uh, is now part of Valiant Pharmaceuticals, got acquired a couple years ago. And before that, similar role at Biosurgical Corporation, which is now a division of Baxter International, was acquired um, back in about 2000, I think. And, um, and before that, I was at uh, Nelcor as development of, uh, or uh, uh, director of product development for the perinatal division working on fetal pulse oximetry. Okay, well, I mean, it's, it sounds like you've had quite a bit of success, so I, I can imagine you're, you're uh, sought out quite often to run startups so that they can have a fantastic IPO and acquisition. So I'm sure uh, uh, the team behind Cerebrotech, your investors are pretty excited to have you on board. Oh, 
Well, thanks. Thanks. Um, things are, are going real well here. So, uh, so, so far, so good. And, and what an opportunity to, you said you're, you're from Pleasanton too, right? I am. I live right here in Pleasanton, been here for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, that's fantastic to be able to do what you do right in your backyard. Well, that's one, one of the nice things about starting these companies is you, you get to put them where you want to put them, which uh, <laughs> is usually a couple miles from home in my case. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, Mitch, uh, I, I know, um, We've been doing, or our audience has, has been participating and are listening to some of these podcasts now for, for a while. And one of the things that, that we'd like to try to do at the very beginning is we, we try to, within the first few minutes, give them some valuable nugget, some key piece of information, some tidbit or, or key uh, uh, pointer that, that you can share with them. And so, and so we're going to start that off. So what is your number one tip for a startup medical device company? Well, so if I'm thinking about a tip for the entrepreneur who's starting up one of these companies, um, I would say spend the time and pick the right project. Uh, you, you're going to spend potentially years working on this project and, and uh, make sure that it's one that's got all the key attributes that are um, going to make it a successful startup as well as make it something that you could really enjoy working on. So. Key attributes are things like um, having a, um, a standout value proposition, something that's going to improve care, reduce costs, improve efficiency uh, in, in, let's say, the hospital process. All of these things are hot-button issues for medical device companies. Game-changing products are really fun. Uh, I mean, it's not critical. They're, uh, they're, they're just, I think, more fun than working on projects uh, or products that are um, better, faster, cheaper. But of course, those are also hugely important for um, for the medical device industry. And these days, also, I would say a key attribute would be something that is financeable. Increasingly, investors are risk averse, especially in this medical device sector. So think through what it is that investors are looking for, and make sure it's something that you'll be able to attract funding for. And then, um, and then maybe lastly, a project that you would have the ability to mitigate the major risks early uh, on a preferably small amount of capital. When I was, um, when I was at Zeltique in the early days, um, I arrived there, and this was back before the crash in 2008 when medical device funding got so tough. There was $7 million in the company that uh, the VCs who got together and um, created the company then went out and looked for a CEO to start it and brought me in and they had put in seven million dollars there to build the company and I felt like my job at that point was either demonstrate that this technology was never going to work as quickly and inexpensively as possible uh, or to uh, prove that it could, could work and mitigating those um, risks early put us in a great position for our second round of financing and think well after that. All right, great. So let's let's talk a little bit about Cerebrotech. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the product, the, the the technology, and then we'll uh, the next set of questions that we start to dive into will be some specific examples about Cerebrotech and some of, of your uh, other startups and experiences that you've had throughout your career. But just talk a little bit about the technology that you're working on now. Uh, of course, share what you can and what you're willing to share with the audience and. And kind of where you are, and I guess in the uh, the scheme of uh, going to market. 
All right, great. Um, I, uh, well, I co-founded Cerebratech about four years ago with the inventor of the uh, technology, a very creative uh, um, engineering professor named Boris Rabinsky at uh, University of California at Berkeley. And like maybe all the technologies I've ever worked on, it appears to be fundamentally very simple once somebody else has the insight. And uh, the, the technology uh, on its core level, what we're doing is passing radio waves through the brain, in this case, uh, through tissue, and see what happens to those radio waves between the emitter and detector antennas. And that transfer function uh, can tell us a lot about the bioimpedance of the tissue, the electrical properties of the tissue, which change when fluids in the tissue change. So in the case of Cerebrotech, uh, the fluid changes we'd be looking for are changes in cerebral blood volume, changes that develop with uh, swelling or edema. So those, uh, that we, that's uh, the tissue fluid, intracellular and extracellular fluid, and the cerebral spinal fluid. All of these different fluid changes will change the bioimpedance and change it in different ways at different frequencies. So we're using multiple frequencies and creating something of a, a spectrometer, looking at the frequency response of this bioimpedance. Um, and, and from that, we can detect some really uh, game-changing uh, new insights into what's happening in the brains of patients on a continuous, completely non-invasive uh, way. So if I, if I can just interject, I, I, excuse the pun, but it's, it's like you're taking brain surgery to a whole different level. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, sure, this could be used in brain surgery, but uh, there's, um, let's say, our, our first application is for patients who've just experienced an acute brain injury, either from a stroke okay. or a brain trauma, and they usually come into the hospital by ambulance. They are rushed into radiology, get a baseline CT scan, which is tremendous and has really changed the whole way that patients are, are treated today for these kinds of brain injuries. But once we get the picture and we can create a diagnosis, then the patient is put admitted into the hospital and we lose complete track of them. They hook them up to all the non-invasive monitoring technologies that they have, like pulse oximetry, right. blood pressure, heart rate, which tells the neurologist almost nothing that they need to know. What they really want to know is, is the patient developing cerebral edema or bleeding? And then that will be able to prompt an intervention. Okay. We've got great interventions, too. What has been missing for decades now is a good monitoring technology to tell the uh, the clinical staff when the patient needs to have some intervention. So it's relatively non-invasive. It's completely non-invasive. Okay. Uh, the, the, this is uh, just it's a, it's as non-invasive as a cell phone. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's a pretty good description. And and so it's, I'm guessing you've been around for a few years, but I'm I'm guessing that it sounds like this is a little bit of a kind of a blue ocean. It d doesn't sound like there's been a lot of of work in this space as far as devices are concerned. Well, I wouldn't say there hasn't been a lot of work. The problem is has been uh, been there, but it's just been persistent uh, again because some nobody really thought of the right way to address it. Um, other neuromonitoring technologies either are invasive or they're not measuring really the right thing. There are a host of, uh, of technologies out there uh, or, or companies that are working on non-invasive intracranial pressure 
monitor, uh, monitoring or detection. Uh, but that's not the same as measuring the fluids directly, and the pressure is something that reacts late. So if you want an early indicator or a monitor that can really track the progress of the problem as it's developing, you really need to be measuring the fluids directly, and, and for that you really need our, our technology. Cool. And, and rough ballpark, I'm, I'm sure uh, your investors probably uh, are curious about this too, but, uh, and I'm guessing somebody that's been down this path many times before has a pretty good gauge on, on how far away you are from entering the, mar the market. But best case scenario, I mean, are you... Are you one year, two year, five years away? Do you have a sense for that right now? Well, yeah, we're we're getting closer than that. Um, the uh, we we've shown some excellent results in clinical studies at UCSF, at Stanford, Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, we submitted for and and just received our CE mark, so we are ready cool. to begin commercial operations in Europe. Uh, we're going to postpone that until early next year when we have our. Uh, uh, first commercial grade uh, device, and then we will go into what I'm calling a beta evaluation where we'll put it into key institutions and let them use it uh, for a while until we make sure we work all the bugs out of it before sure. introducing it for revenue. Yeah, that makes good sense. Makes excellent sense. Um, yeah, I, I had a chance to hear you you speak at a recent event, and and uh, doing so when I when I heard heard you speak, I was just I was really it's fascinated to be quite honest. Of course, I am a little bit of a startup med device geek uh, from time to time. But one of the thing, there's a couple of things that you said during during your um, your your um, speech or your presentation that that uh, I jotted down, and I wanted to chat with you a little bit about today. the The first one is I remember you saying that that you're currently in the process of a Series E uh, round of fundraising, and uh, E as an echo, uh, and I, that. Caught, you know, it caused me to scratch my head a little bit because that's that's that defies conventional wisdom to some extent. I mean, most med device startups who are in the fundraising round, I mean, at least once upon a time, it, it used to be thought of if you were on Series E that that something bad had happened. So, can you talk a little bit about your approach because I, I, it was really novel and and pretty unique uh, when when you explained it? Yeah, um, yeah. I, my belief is that those days are gone. Uh, we, we're we're in a whole different paradigm. That that model really is is broken. It doesn't work the same anymore. And, and that all changed pretty suddenly after the crash in 2008 when particular medical device investors, but really all investors from all sectors, just lost confidence in, in startups and their ability to, uh, to make a good return on them. And in most of the sectors in technology and uh, bio, uh, uh, other areas besides medical devices, those investors have come back, but in medical devices they really haven't. And there is this fear of putting money in at the early stage and not and, and getting diluted out. So we lost most of the venture capital firms who were investing in the early stages uh, back in 2008 and they uh, are beginning to crop back up just a whole new set of uh, VC firms. Um, but it's they're, they're still relatively uh, scarce and there's a lot of competition for those early dollars. So. I designed Cerebratech to survive that type of a difficult early stage financing environment. And the way that I have done that is I have raised small incremental rounds, been very capital efficient in between them, hit key milestones and focused all that money on just hitting the milestones that are directly in front of us that would increase the value to get to the next round. 
and virtually once a year then I have gone back out and uh, raised another round with a, um, uh, a, a steady increase in valuation, not, not, a, not an exceptionally high one, uh, but, but not a low one either. And I think uh, slow and steady is, is winning the race here. At uh, Cerebrotech, I've only spent about $6 million over four years, so we've kept it extremely yeah. capital efficient. Um, and that, I think, in today's environment is just key uh, to, to being able to survive those, um, those startup years. I feel like we're getting past that now, and now we've got a product that works. We've got the CE mark. We're moving into a commercial stage, and there are more investors that are available for, for this stage of company, especially um, with a uh, market that's as big as ours and, and uh, the potential for the technology to, to really change medicine. Yeah, the, the other um, um, thing that I'm, I guess I drew a conclusion when I, when I heard you talk about your, your previous startups and the successes that you'd had in the IPOs. And I automatically assumed until um, um, until I had a chance to talk to you after I automatically assumed that the investors for Cerebrotech were likely investors from your previous ventures, but that's not been the case. No, the investors in Cerebrotech for the most part didn't uh, aren't doing early stage medical device investing anymore. Uh, so no, I had to find uh, all different investors, and and back in 2000 when we closed our first round, the uh, it was really just trying to find uh, find people who almost hadn't invested in medical devices uh, before, because um, uh, it's just a whole new new crop of uh, early stage in investors that had to be found. Yeah, yeah. The other the other thing that you shared when I when I heard you speak, you talked a little bit about some of the the biggest challenges that are that Cere Cerebrotech is faced with. And I'm going to confess, I don't, I don't remember the first three or four items that are at the top on your list. But the thing that, that stuck out in, in my mind is regulatory. And regulatory was, was almost non-existent as a risk as far as Cerebrotech is concerned. And, and that seems also against ca uh, conventional wisdom. I, I talk to a lot of startups, and they're all always worried about FDA and how to get CE mark and, and all those regulatory uh, obstacles and challenges. So what have you done differently? Why, why have you been able to reduce or, or for the most part, eliminate uh, regulatory from being in sort of your top five from a risk standpoint? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing is to pick a tech. I, I picked a technology that has got a relatively low bar in terms of regulatory because it's so non-invasive. There, there's no way to, to hurt a patient or, uh, with, with the device unless you drop it on your foot. Um, even then, it's getting to be pretty small and light, so it probably wouldn't hurt anyway. Um, but that, that's the beginning. If you have a very safe product, and then it's about efficacy. And, and in our case, we had to demonstrate that we were able to measure or monitor the progressive changes to fluids in the brain. And um, so what I did early on in our history is I held several key meetings with the FDA and, and culminating in a pre-submission meeting. And we got pretty good clarity on what it is that FDA needs to see to validate that our parameter is uh, and that our device is measuring this parameter of fluid volume change. So, so we understood very early on what we needed to do, and um, and we do it. So, so we're um, uh, in the process of uh, finishing up gathering the data that I already know that FDA is going to need, and um, and we also had very early on a 
strategy, as many medical device companies are doing, uh, of pursuing both regulatory clearance in the U.S. and in Europe in parallel. And that's worked real well for us. So um, we're going to be able to um, move, move the project right along and, and transition from R&D into commercial without having to worry too much about the uh, regulatory timeline. So from a U.S. perspective, I mean, the, the, the early conversations with the FDA, did, did that lead you down a, a de novo path, or are you able to go the, the traditional 510K path? Yeah, so it's a, we, we actually have both options, um, and it, it's a little um, – our, our strategy there is, uh, is fairly creative, and, and I'm, uh, I'm going to keep that one to ourselves All for right, now. But the, fair enough. Um, but, but we're, we're going to eventually probably have a uh, de novo 510K in order to get some specific claims that, gotcha. that other devices don't have. So that's your competitive advantage from an IP standpoint. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Or or one maybe. All right. Um, so so you, you maybe touched on this already, but but the the medical device startups who who um, who are faced with regulatory as maybe one of the top one or two items on their list from a risk standpoint. What what advice would you give them to reduce that risk? I, I mean, it sounds like you've had good success with the the meetings with the FDA. Are, are there other tips that you would recommend? Well, I think you you. Uh you hit on one, which is that uh, don't make the mistake of believing that the that FDA is really the same as they were uh, 10 years or more ago. FDA today is much more collaborative than they used to be. Um, so I recommend holding early meetings, laying out the strategy, agreeing on the endpoints. Um, if you're doing clinical studies, uh, which most of us are, and um, and also I don't think we need to be afraid of de novo 510Ks anymore. When, when I was at Zeltique, we had to submit a, a de novo 510K, and in those days we didn't have a direct de novo. So we submitted our 510K, waiting for our, uh, our NSE letter to come back. Um, and FDA was just tripping on themselves uh, with, with de novos. In fact, maybe, maybe the more accurate depiction would be they were just paralyzed, not really yeah. knowing how to move the things forward. And, and we waited for two and a half years yeah. to get this, the de novo through, which was not uncommon at the time. Uh, but today, that's just not the case anymore. Um, so that would be one, one other bit of advice I'd, I'd give. So, so the, you know, I've, I've heard similar stories about de novo. Once upon a time, it was just like a kiss of death. You know, you were going to kill your timeline and, and just be sitting there twiddling your thumbs while you were waiting for some sort of uh, reading one way or the other. But, but I think that's, that's a very key point for the audience to understand is de novo in 2015 is is – Almost, at least in what I've heard in my experience, is almost as 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 uh, predictable, let's say, as as a five ten k. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right. Uh, any other key tips that you would recommend? You know, whether it be regulatory or or quality system related, or any of those types of areas that sometimes companies are like, eh, I don't, I don't want to waste my time, effort, and energy. I want to focus on the technology. That quality system, design control, risk, those things are, are less important. Are, are there things that, that companies should be doing to, to put a little bit more emphasis or at least reduce those things from being obstacles downstream? Yeah, here's another thing I've done that's been um, unorthodox is getting, uh, getting ISO certification extremely early. Uh, when, when I had my, uh, my first submission for um, ISO certification, we put together our quality system. 
I was still running the company out of my spare bedroom. Um, the company was only about a year, year and a half old. Um, it was just me. It was a all virtual company. We had no facility. We were only doing early stage R&D. There was no clinical studies, no production. Um, and what turns out is that when the auditors come in to um, audit your quality system, you really only have one significant SOP, just your design control SOP. Hmm. And there's nothing else to audit. And, and, um, and the certification process is really about finding um, finding flaws uh, in your quality system. And if you really don't have much of a quality system, they can't find flaws, they kind of have to certify you. So, so we got our ISO certification at uh, a really, um, really early stage. And, and then you just build the quality system and, and then once a year do the surveillance audits and the thing grows organically and you don't have this big push someday you know down the road three four years in where you've really got lots of stuff lots of documentation and procedures that you have to have to audit and get all up to snuff yeah that that's uh it's unorthodox and and that is i mean it's i remember when you mentioned that to me a few weeks back and, and even today it's just one of those things that's it's it's really hard for a startup company to wrap their head around and it's one of those things that sometimes they they push off and they delay to later but but there is a lot of value or a lot of, of um, yeah, just I guess value and, and doing checking that box early and and then like you said, there's the ISO process is pretty forgiving, but but at the same time, I mean, it, it puts you on a path so that they can come in very early in the process, certify your quality system, and then you just kind of build on it from there. I mean, it's a very novel and unique approach. Yeah, yeah, I find it works well. So we've we've talked about uh, quite a bit today. So I, I, I guess. One of the things I want to, want to, um, last couple of things I want to kind of hit on today is, is what what do you feel about technology? I mean, I, I once read, uh, and I'll paraphrase a little bit something that you said about how important technology is to to medical devices today, uh, and and it sounds like a lot of the startups you've been involved with, there's a strong technology play. But can you can you speak to where you think the technology is going? I mean, things like wearables seem to be dominating. A lot of discussions uh, that I'm reading about these days. So, what, what are your thoughts about technology? Yeah, t- uh, well, technology is is obviously critically important, um, but it is not as important as the value proposition. It, it, it's not important that you have a whiz bang technology. It's important that you have something that's going to make a real difference in patient care. It's going to improve outcomes. It's going to make the uh, uh, it's going to reduce cost and um, streamline and make more efficient the healthcare processes. So I would look much more at the value proposition than I would at the technology itself. Uh, of course, you got to get the technology right once you once you've established what it's going to be. Sure, sure. And and obviously you, you've um, you've been successful in Pleasanton, California. But but do you think that that geography and the and the location? You think how how important do you think that is for for a med device startup today? Do, does it have to be in Pleasanton, California, or can you be in Indianapolis, Indiana, or some other location? Do you have any thoughts about that? I do. Well, it, it's it's getting much easier with all of the communication tools we have available. You and I are doing this interview over Skype, three thousand miles apart, um, and and there's lots of progress that can be made. We can do these companies virtually, and I ran the Cerebrotech virtually for three years, um, but eventually, when you need to build the company into uh, you know, ha- have brick and mortar, have an R&D lab, uh, and have uh, e- engineers and, and prof- other professionals across the um, 
the, the different functional areas, it is important to be in an area where you're going to be able to have those resources. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in having the people be co-located uh, so that they're bumping elbows and, and all the different functions are all blending together and have very fuzzy lines between the functional groups. And that's very difficult to do if you don't have everybody in one place. So, yeah. so uh, I, I don't know how many places there are in the United States where you have the type of people who can do that. But I know the Bay Area certainly is a um, is major hub and there, there are several others. But uh, you can't, can't do that as easily everywhere else in the country. Yeah. And one of the, the things that I've often advised a lot of startups that I work with, I mean, it's okay to be virtual and rely on a lot of third-party suppliers, but but the, the adage that, I, that I've that uh, i shared with a lot of these startups is it's ideal to have your, your supply base within strangling distance. So that way you can get in a car and you can drive to them or, uh, you know, without an inconvenience. I mean, it's sometimes when you get in those critical stages, having your resources like you said, co-located or within a couple of hours of your location. I mean, that's very key, especially as there's lots of iterations when you're going through um, things like verification and validation activities. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. All right, so we, um, you've shared a lot with the audience today, and, and I'll give you a chance to kind of share any final thoughts that you have, something that, that uh, is on your mind that we haven't covered. Um, well, I, I guess I just wanted to reiterate that when you're putting these um, startups together, it all comes down, w- when it all comes down to it, it really is all about getting the right people on board. Uh, and that includes getting the right board members, your management team, your employees, your clinical consultants, your suppliers, uh, and, and making sure that that company culture is right to be able to get the synergies you need across all the different functions. I, I think that that point just uh, needs to be in the front of the, the mind of the uh, entrepreneurs and, and the management team. All right. Well, Mitch, I appreciate your time. Uh, I just want to let everybody know that, that they can learn more about you and, and what you're doing uh, by Cerebrotech, uh, finding Cerebrotech Medical, just a quick Google search. I believe your, your website is also cerebrotechmedical.com. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Pretty much just as it sounds. Uh, so you can, you can look up what they're doing. Uh, and I'm sure you can find Mitch also on LinkedIn. Mitch, are there other ways that people can get in touch with you, or, or is that the best way? Uh, no, those are those are two great ways to find me. All right, great. Uh, my name is John Spear. Again, I'm the, the the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory for Greenlight.Guru. Uh, just to let you know, Greenlight is is developing software solutions to help medical device companies with document management and design controls and risk management. And uh, appreciate you listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.